Turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. For those of you that are parents, have you had that experience, or at least that idea, of sharing with your kids the same TV shows that you enjoyed as a child? Right? Maybe maybe we've done that. You notice how sometimes it goes better than others? Sometimes you, you show a, a movie from the 80s to your kids, and you got to stop it 10 minutes in because you realize, oh, I think I watched the edited TV version as a kid, right? <laughs> and you realize they didn't have PG-13 back then, so even though it says PG, it doesn't really mean PG. Um, <laughs> confession time, right? Um, or, right, there's the wonderful 80s TV shows. So we have recently rediscovered Wait for it. MacGyver. Who has rewatched the 1980s MacGyver? Yes, yes. So the, the jury is still out. My wife warned me. She's like, she's like, don't just recommend it to them. Like, okay, we don't know. We're three episodes in, okay? And we have our weekly movie night usually. And so, hey, okay, we're watching some MacGyver. And so far, it's pretty good, right? I mean, he's always like getting out of escaping like really gnarly situations. And he does make bombs a lot. So I don't, I don't know if, what kind of the ramifications of that are a little less politically correct today. Um, but, but yeah, MacGyver's a pretty cool show. Um, another one, how about Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Oh, yeah, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you guys know, you, you want your closet uh, Mr. Rogers fans. So uh, my wife has started doing this during our... We, She's a home educator and teaches the kids uh, primarily at home. And, and so sometimes during the, uh, the morning, as she's working with the older kids, she'll put on an episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood for the younger kids, right? And they're just, and they're just watching it, and, and they, they love it. They love it. And I, I've, I've started kind of wanting to learn more about this guy, Fred Rogers, and what he's about. There's some pretty good documentaries out there about, about his life and, and how he was this, this Christian pastor, right, that went into television, and there's this one particular documentary, you can, it's on Amazon Prime, and he's, it's uh, put together by a, an MTV producer. Okay, so just imagine an MTV music video and put that next to Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Right? A little different. Like, there, there's literally an episode in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood where they want to teach kids how long a minute is. And he turns an egg timer to a minute and sets it there. And you're watching for a minute as Mr. Rogers sits next to the egg timer, right? Okay, now compare that to an MTV music video. And so this MTV producer uh, meets Mr. Rogers, and, and Fred Rogers is asking him about his career as an MTV producer and, and all that. And then this man shares that, that Mr. Rogers said to him something that haunted him for years. And he said this, he says, Deep and simple is far more essential than shallow and complex. Deep and simple is far more essential than shallow and complex. And when we come to the parables of Jesus, right, we're not getting these intricate stories of, with all these plot twists and complex characters and flashy cuts, right, and special effects. You're getting a story that's simple, but profoundly deep, right? They're they're designed to be meditated upon 
and to be read again and again. And their meaning isn't always obvious on the surface, right? Well, we don't need to go like hunting for allegories, right? And, and the symbolic meaning of every character and every single little word. But still, the meaning isn't plain to just a casual reading. Like, you, you can't like the same way you flip through the channels or scroll through your social media feed. That's not how you can read the parables. Because they're simple, but they're deep. And there's layers to them and angles to them. And they invite us to put ourselves into the story. Invite us to think deeply and to say, hey, which of these characters do I identify with? Which of these characters is kind of like me? So that's what I want us to do. I want us to, we're gonna, I'm going to read through this, this parable in Matthew 20. I want to invite you to listen to it slowly. I invite you to ask, which of these characters do I feel like, do I relate to? So let's read together. This is Matthew chapter 20, uh, starting verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last workers as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. That's the word of the Lord. So we're going to look at this parable, and I want us to look at it from three angles. What it shows us about the work of the kingdom, what it shows us about the character of the king, and what it shows us about our grumbling hearts. Okay? The work of the kingdom the character of the king, and our grumbling hearts. First, the work of the kingdom. And from this parable, I believe that we see that that work is both active and passive on our part. So it's a parable about what the kingdom of heaven is like. Right? The master of the vineyard is God. He's inviting people into the work of the kingdom. And throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we see both. We see some parables and some teachings of Christ that emphasize 
the call to follow Jesus and take up your cross. And it's an active call that we have to do and go and obey. And there's other parables and passages that emphasize the the passive receiving of the kingdom. That it's something freely given to us. Right? Come, you're weary and heavy laden, just come and receive. I will give to you a free gift. In this parable, we see both of those, act, those uh, aspects. First, the active one. The gospel call in this parable is framed as an invitation to work. It's an invitation to labor in the vineyard, in the harvest field. The image has a clear missional thrust, right? A call to join Jesus in his mission. The only other time that that word laborer appears in the Gospel of Matthew is in, at the end of chapter 9 once and once in chapter 10. Turn there with me. I want you to see it. Just turn back a couple pages to Matthew 9, verse 35. And, and pay attention to where the word laborer appears. In verse 35, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then the next chapter, he does that, right? He sends out his disciples to go to the people of Israel and to, and to bring the kingdom and to witness to the gospel. And so we, we see from, from this, this passage that this call and mission of the disciples was to bring back the lost sheep of Israel. But then, and here we are in 20, chapter 20, if we look ahead to the end of the book, and we take the whole book in context, you have that great passage known as the Great Commission, where you see that that mission of God expands from to the nation of Israel out to the nations. And since I'm a missionary, I think there's some unspoken word, uh, rule about reading the Great Commission. So I'm going to read the Great Commission to you because <laughs> this is the direction that the call, the work of the laborers of the gospel are going. And that Great Commission is in Matthew 28. This is after the resurrection. The, uh, Christ appears to the disciples. In verse 16, it says this. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so that mission expands from Israel to the nations. And here in chapter 20, we see that the call to follow Jesus is a, is a call to enter his vineyard, to labor with him. Now, I don't believe that there is some division here between just those believers that receive 
the gift of the kingdom and those that then choose to labor out into the harvest field. I don't think this is a parable written to pastors or vocational missionaries or, or church leaders. This is about entering the kingdom. Yes, there's a gift of spiritual leadership. Yes, there's a vocational calling to ministry. But this is a call to follow Jesus. This is a call to enter the kingdom. And it's an invitation to labor in the field. It's an invitation to make disciples, to teach the words of Christ, to lift the weight of the curse off of people's lives. And to do that in whatever our vocational context happens to be. Now, if you, if you look at this parable, the, the last people he comes to, he says he finds them at the end of the day still idle, still waiting to be hired, still waiting to do something. Now, in the image of this parable, these might be people that have not yet entered the kingdom and have not yet followed Jesus. But I, I sense, I, I think there's a hint of, of maybe like the parable of Ma- in Matthew 25 about the unfaithful servant, right? Where, or, or you probably know it as the parable of the talents, right? Where Jesus gives, or the master gives different amounts of uh, the talents to different servants. And some, right, take it and share it and invest it and, and build something with it and it bears fruit and it multiplies, but then there's, there's one servant who buries it and hides the treasure of the kingdom that's been entrusted to him, right? And, and the, the master comes to that, that servant and says, right, what, why, why, why didn't you at least put it in the bank? Why didn't you at least do something with it? And he says, what you have will be taken away and given to another. And there's this picture of, of not being faithful with what we've been given, of the gospel. And so, there's a call in this passage, right, to those who are idle, to those who, who maybe hear the call of Christ, but don't enter into that vineyard. And so the first aspect of the work of the kingdom is that it's active, and it's a call into the harvest fields. But likewise, it's also passive, the work of the kingdom is also something that we receive, right? We're also reminded that our entrance into the kingdom is by God's grace alone and by his free choosing alone. Notice that the master is the one doing the inviting into the kingdom work, right? And we are idle, sitting around without work, unemployed. In that cultural context, these were the day laborers. Okay, these were the, like the, the, the temp workers that would show up at the temp agency saying, I don't have any job, I don't know what I'm going to do today, and I really hope someone hires me. Okay, in the Mosaic Law, there's even uh, requirements about not withholding the, the wage from these laborers, because that was literally the, the money that they, would, they needed to, to eat. That was the money that they needed to pay for a roof over their head. And so these are people living hand to mouth in poverty. They have no other resources to rely on, no permanent employment or assets to draw income from. And then notice, there's no standards given by which to be hired here. There's no minimum requirements. 
The master did not go out and accept resumes and go through an extensive interview process. Right? No, there's one qualification to be hired by the master. You're unemployed and you know it. When we come to Christ and put our faith in him, we have nothing to boast in. We have zero qualifications to bring. And put the, change that. The only qualification needed is spiritual poverty. Do you have nothing? Are you entirely unqualified to work for the kingdom? Are you spiritually lame? Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you broken? Are you a dropout and a failure? You're hired. You're hired. Welcome aboard. Right? He has a job for you to do. You get to join him, right, in making this place new. And he's going to start with you. He's going to start by making you new. So the work of the kingdom is fully active. It requires everything from us to go into the field and labor in his mission. And it's entirely passive. We bring nothing to recommend ourselves for his hiring except our poverty. So it's the work of the kingdom. The second is, let's look at the character of the king, that he is both generous and he's patient. Look at how this parable ends, right towards the end in verse 15, as he talks to these grumbling workers. He says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? If you look at your footnote, if you have an ESV, the other way you can translate that is basically, is your eye evil because I am good? Is your eye evil because I am good? We use that word good, right, for lots of things. That was a good game. Yeah, good game. Good hot dog. I hear we're going to have hot dogs today. They might be good. I hope so, right? (laughs) A good movie, right? That's, that's, we, we throw that word around. Okay, if you read the scriptures and you see the word good, it doesn't throw that word around. Okay, in, in fact, one chapter earlier, there's that weird statement where Jesus says, there is only one who is good, right? Only God is good. Through the scriptures, this attribute of goodness applies only to God or to people who are reflecting the character of God. And so this parable shows us that God is good. And I think it's a good translation to say that he is generous. He is abundant in his kindness. His goodness overflows into our lives. But it doesn't, this parable doesn't tell us just that he's good. It shows us that he's good. It shows us that he is generous. So something else about the culture here, and this is how it shows us he's good. We learn about the, right, the guys who started the first hour, the third hour, the sixth hour. Right? The, so they didn't have clocks back then and watches and alarms, right? So how did they figure out the workday? Well, they did it with the sun. And, and so the workday was a 12-hour day. And, the, and right, the first hour, sunrise, last hour, sunset, and you divided up your day based on that in your workday. And some are hired, right, beginning the, the first hour. Others the third, the sixth, the ninth, and then finally some are hired right before sunset. 
And now get this about God's generosity. The reward of eternal life is given based entirely on the generosity of the Lord of the vineyard and not based on how long or how hard we have worked. In fact, all who follow Jesus and who labor in his fields receive blessings that are far out of proportion with the work or sacrifices that we have made. Look back with me right in that, the, the two verses before chapter 20. So at the end of uh, chapter 19, Jesus says this in verse 29 of chapter 19. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. There is no sacrifice that you can make in this life for your Lord that will not be paid back a hundredfold in the kingdom. And if you are a Christian this morning, you are a third, a sixth, a ninth, or eleventh hour worker. None of us are getting paid our due. All of us have signed up late to the show. And are being shown mercy. And I know some of you have sacrificed much to follow Jesus. And we can say with that great missionary to Africa, David Livingston, I never made a sacrifice. I left home. I left comfort. I left family. To live in Africa, to explore and to open doors for the gospel. And I never made a sacrifice. I want, some of you, I think, need to hear that this morning. If you're considering a work for the kingdom, if you're considering going somewhere and following a call for the sake of Christ that involves risk or sacrifice, Hear this. There is no sacrifice that you can make that he will not turn for your good and for his glory. As we look at the character of God in this story, we see his justice. And his justice assures us that no one will receive less reward than he deserves. And his generosity assures assures us that all of us will receive more reward than we deserve. Our master is generous with all his people. The second aspect of his character we see here, and that's his patience or his perseverance. (laughs) I'm going to draw your attention to the way that the master of the vineyard goes again and again into the marketplace. Right? He doesn't go just once and say, okay, they heard the call. They heard the open invite. I got work to do. If you're lazy and idle, you got nothing to do. Come work for me. I'll pay you a fair wage. And then he goes and does his own thing. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, oh, they've already heard. They've had a chance. They refused. I'm moving on. No. He goes again and again looking for people to hire, right? And it doesn't make any financial sense, right? 
what he's doing. It doesn't make financial sense. It's not a good use of his resources and his time. But he keeps going out, pleading with the nations, pleading with us to come and join him in his vineyard. And his wisdom, right? The gospel first went to the nation of Israel. And now through the church, it's going to the nations. And this hasn't happened all at once. If I was figuring out a plan, right, to reach the world, all at once, right? Some big megaphone or something, right? I don't know. Or uh, we know Jesus can do that dream thing, right? Okay, one, just mass dream. (laughs) Come to Christ. No. It's little by little in this third the sixth, the ninth, and the eleventh hour. He goes out. And we know from Matthew twenty four fourteen that this gospel will go to the ends of the earth. He says, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. He will get his gospel to all peoples before he settles accounts. There will be an opportunity for all peoples to join in his vineyard work. Now look at how he calls us. How does he call people into his kingdom? He doesn't sit there waiting for them. He goes out and he seeks them. He's going out to hire people. He is looking and he sees workers who are idle and he pursues them. And he returns again to the marketplace It emphasizes his active pursuit of people. If you're a follower of Christ this morning, you're in the kingdom. You're his because he actively pursued you. (laughs) And he's been more patient with some of us than others. Right? And he's come again and again and shared and brought you hope and, and brought you direction and called you and wooed you until he's made you his own. Aren't you thankful he is patient with us? And so a simple application and a question. Are we this vigilant when it comes to pursuing those who are far from God? Do we seek out people wherever they are or do we expect them to come to us and find us? Are we on the lookout for those who are, that are like sheep without a shepherd? Do we speak words of hope from the scriptures when we hear that someone is discouraged? Do you offer to pray for someone when you hear about a need? And then do you have that that little ounce of faith to actually pray for a miracle? Pray for God to show up right there? Like, (laughs) do we challenge people in our lives to live for something bigger than themselves? Right? There, you look at our culture, we are so aimless. We have no idea what to live for. We have no idea what is worth giving our lives to. There's a great vineyard work to do, and there's a great party at the end that we get to invite people to. And just another application question. Do we get do we take rejection and just like take our ball and go home? (laughs) They they didn't hear me. They didn't receive me. They made fun of me. 
Okay, I give up. You know, it doesn't say in the parable, but I wonder how many of the people heard the first invitation to work. Ah, I'm going to look for a better option. I got other things I'm doing. And he just kept coming back and coming back and coming back until they were ready and said, okay, I got nothing else. Jesus, where else can I go? You're the only one with the words of eternal life. Like, finally, they will come. I, 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 I think of this, this, this man back, back in my hometown named Bob Riley. And he's a, he's a Christian. He follows and loves Jesus. And he's a realtor. He's been a realtor his whole life. And, and he's an, an evangelist. He just loves sharing about Jesus with people. He, he told me once. I, I got to know him as a, um, a high school. I met Jesus at 16. And, and shortly after that, I, I got to know him. And I, I knew him when we were uh, back in my, my hometown church planting. And he said to me once, he said, You know, Oshawa, I used to see you with your mom around town when you were a little boy. And I prayed for you. And you're, I'm, I'm like 25, like a pastor. I'm like, what, you prayed for me when I was a little kid? He's like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I saw you as a little boy with your mom, this little hippie kid. And I'm like, I'm going to pray for that kid. Wow. And then, so I, I'll, like, a couple times I've driven around with this guy. And, and we'll meet different people. And he'll be like, I've been praying for that guy for 17 years. He hasn't, he hasn't trusted Christ yet. But I've been sharing with him. I think he's almost there. Or like, see that guy? It took him 10 years. But, but Jesus got him. And I'm just like, oh, I want to be like that when I grow up. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> Do we have that heart that we see in the master of pursuing those who are far from God? And then the third point, the final thing this parable shows us is about our grumbling hearts. Now, when we read the, the parables... I think it's easy just to stop at like that, the obvious historical kind of contextual interpretation and never apply it to our lives, right? So we might read this and be like, oh yeah, those Pharisees, here they are, they're grumbling at the Gentiles being invited into the kingdom. Yep, yep, those Pharisees. Um, or maybe we read the context and we're like, yeah, Peter was boasting about his sacrifices. So, so yeah, Peter needed to be humbled, so Jesus told him this parable. There you go, Peter. Peter, Peter, needed to hear this. And then we stop there. And we don't turn it over in our own hearts and ask, how am I like these grumbling workers? How do I grumble at God? Now, these workers get the most attention, right? The grumblers. Let's, let's read that again in, uh, as, as we close and, and look at how their hearts are similar to ours. Look in verse 9. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? 
The master of the vineyard asks the grumbling workers three questions. And as one commentator on this passage said, that biblical questions are altar calls. They invite us to admit where we're wrong. So I'm going to close on these three questions. Look at them with me. It's, he asks, did I not agree with you for one denarius? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And then finally, do you begrudge my generosity? The first question, did I not agree? Did you not agree with me for one denarius? He's asking us, what did you think you would get paid? Did you not know that you would work through the heat of the day? Did you not know that following Jesus would cost you everything? We don't believe in a health and wealth gospel. We don't believe that following Jesus will like, make your life perfect and easy. We don't believe that applying biblical principles of wisdom will make all your problems go away. He never promised health and wealth. Neither did he promise us obedient children or happy marriages or a kingdom here on earth. He did promise us persecution and suffering. And he said he'd be with us until the end of the age. And so as Christians, yes, we experience blessing as a result of obedience. I grew up in a non-Christian, single-parent home. Life wasn't easy growing up. I didn't have a, any good role models in my life. In fact, the first healthy marriages that I saw were after I became a Christian uh, as a teenager. I didn't, I didn't know how to be a dad. I didn't know how to be a husband. And I had to study the Scripture's heart. Right? I, I had to learn. I had to get around older godly men and learn from them. And our life and our family isn't perfect, but by God's grace, I'm experiencing some fruit of that obedience. But when I'm tempted to think that God owes me the perfect family or the perfect marriage or a fruitful ministry or anything else in this life, right? I need to ask myself again. I need to be drawn back to this again and again. Why did I believe? What was the promise I put my hope in? Was it for something in this life? Is that what I signed up for, is I could have a happy family? No. My hope is in that last moment when I meet my Savior, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. That's the denarius that he's promised us. And it is enough. It is enough. A second question he asks us, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Do you believe that God is free? Can he give to one servant suffering and obscurity along with the faith to endure it, and give to another servant pleasure and popularity, along with the faith to endure it. Can he do that? 
Can he give abundant spiritual gifts and natural talents to some who wasted on worldly pursuits only to turn to Christ in their last years? And can he call you early in your life, give you a long, hard path of fruitful obedience in the midst of deep personal challenges and weaknesses? Can he do that? Is he still good? The Lord says to us, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Would we instruct God about how to give out his gifts? Does God have to ask you and I permission to show mercy to whom he will? For me, this is an invitation to stop trying to be in control. To stop thinking I have my perfect model of what my life needs to be. And simply trust that he is good and that he is generous. And then the third question he asks us, and we'll end here. He says, do you begrudge my generosity? Or is your eye evil? The evil eye is a danger both for the religious and the irreligious. Right? You go back to our first parents in the garden. You read Genesis 3. The idea of seeing is used again and again. Right? They, they saw the fruit was beautiful. They saw it would make him wise. It was, it, it was a, a lust of the eyes, a desiring and thinking only with what they see and not what they've heard from God's word. And that's, that's this irreligious pursuit of, of the eye. And that's the world's economy, right? It's built around insatiable desires of the eye. That's how our attention economy on your smartphone is monetizes your eyes to get your attention. But there's also a religious evil eye. And that's what he's addressing in this passage. It's the eye that looks down on other people who are less moral or religious than I am. And which looks out on the world, the world through a works mindset that expects recognition for my moral uprightness and my religious piety. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have a lot in common with these workers. And a biblical story that comes to mind that illustrates it well is simply Job's friends. If you know the story of Job, you have a, a, a suffering righteous man. And you have these wise friends who, who come to him say, and say, surely you have done something wrong. Surely you have sinned greatly because you are suffering. And they have this transactional view of life in God, right? They assumed you do the right things, you walk in wisdom, you follow the rules, you will enjoy God's blessings. And if you are suffering, then you must have done something wrong. If we have that view in life, right, if that's how we think about life, we will grow bitter towards those who experience blessings that are greater than us, and we will feel superior to those who suffer more than us. And ultimately, that turns into a bitterness towards God. This parable ends with these words in verse 16. So the last will be first and the first last. The last become first because they know their need for grace. And they receive it and they embrace it. And the first become last 
because of their self-confidence, because they refuse to give grace to others, and they think that they can earn God's grace for themselves. Let's pray together.